1: i want to start with this anonymous letter that came in uh, to the network that i think sets the pace in a very interesting way listen to this please with an open mind now this is from john doe uh, american if you will he says i believe at the end of 2020 when the vaccines became available to the public america and the world wanted everything to return to normal people were willing to roll up their sleeves and take an experimental jab As a whole, they didn't care what type of risk was involved. They trusted the CDC, the FDA, the vaccine manufacturers, politicians, and the media when they said vaccines are safe and effective. 10 months later, these words are proven to be false. There has been a new vaccine administered to the general public with so many adverse reactions and deaths. In the beginning, people were offered donuts, hamburgers, free marijuana, a program called Joints for Jabs. Later, they offered lottery tickets, millions of dollars in free college. Hmm. All of this quickly uh, changed into, if you don't take the jab, you'll lose your job, right to access certain places of business, freedom to travel, or your ability to attend school. If this Myrna vaccine was so great, coercion wouldn't be necessary. Well, 10 months later, we now know that the vaccine does not stop transmission or prevent you from contracting COVID-19. Can someone explain to me why both the vaccinated and the unvaccinated can both develop and transmit this virus? But only the unvaccinated are at risk of losing their jobs and freedoms. When Biden says the goal is to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated co-workers, that simply does not make sense. Yes, the fully vaccinated are ending up in the hospital too. Our media chooses to not cover this information, even into the global narrative continues to collapse. I believe this has always been about fear. During the Nuremberg trials, judges asked Hermann Goren, how did they make the Germans comply? He answered, the only thing a government needs to turn people into slaves is fear. If you can find someone to make them afraid, you can make them do whatever you want. The media has done a wonderful job in scaring the hell out of America. When does it end? When do people tell the truth? When does someone tell America that natural immunity beats vaccine immunity every day? When do bureaucrats talk about a protocol for early home treatment? When do we discuss the thousands of deaths on VARES? When? Now is the time to come together, my fellow Americans. The unvaccinated and vaccinated are not enemies. We need to come together, and remember our constitution and founding principles. When the people fear their government, there is tyranny. When the government fears the people, there is liberty. I will always choose liberty. Wow, wow, wow. I thought that was worth two minutes of our time, my fellow Americans. And that's where we'll start today on this COVID QA. This is number 11 with Dr. Peter McCullough, who joins me right now on the broadcast. That was an interesting letter, Dr. McCullough, that I just had to read, uh, Americans. Uh, what, what are your... What are your thoughts on on hearing that uh, right now?
2: Americans are worried, Malcolm, thanks for having me on. They're worried that these types of prejudicial uh, actions don't make sense. They're not lining up with the biology that people understand. They're not uh, lining up with the clinical science. Americans are seeing vaccinated give the action to other vaccinated, unvaccinated individuals. Uh, Americans are seeing this real-time playing out in their families, and it doesn't make sense.
1: No, it makes no sense, but I, I felt everybody need to hear that. Or let's go in here and move the train forward. There is a lot of questions. Hopefully, we'll do a record amount here today. This first one is from Carol. She says, I'm a retired physician. I have no words to express my appreciation to Dr. Peter McCullough for his intellect, integrity, and heroism in the COVID wars. I have a question regarding the T-to-tech test. Can it distinguish prior mild SARS-CoV-2 infection in early February 2020 from subsequent Moderna vaccination? Second dose was on February 14. Does the T-detect test establish natural infection regardless of vaccine status, she's asking?
2: I don't know the answer to that question. It's a very good one. I have not seen papers of T-detect in the era of vaccination.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, All right. Uh, John says, uh, my reason for reaching out is to obtain information on the COVID shots related to myocarditis. And I'm currently in my first year as a Navy reservist after spending seven years active duty. As you may already know, the military's mandating the shots and the Navy has put out guidelines on how they will separate service members if they refuse the shots. I've done my research and have read about the young adults in the military and civilian sector. that have received the shots and they've been diagnosed with either myocarditis or pericarditis. Uh, both sides of my family. It's a history of heart-related illness is the problem. Both grandfathers passed of heart disease and my father had suffered heart-related illness as well. I'm 31, good physical health, uh, but concerned with the shot for obvious reasons. So they're asking, basically knowing the family history, you know, being in the military, what do they do?
2: It's clear that this person is in the age range where they could get vaccine-induced myocarditis. And the FDA warns, Uh, people, I think very fairly about this, this can happen. In a paper by Jessica Rose and myself in current of cardiology, showed in the United States VAERS system that myocarditis can occur in men, probably about 90% men, 10% of women, but all the way up to age 50. So he is in that age group. In terms of his family history, the worrisome family history would actually be a family history of heart failure. So heart failure, without having another, so for instance, it is called idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy that actually has familial ties in a considerable proportion of individuals. So it's that type of cardiovascular illness. If it's just coronary heart disease and someone's had an angioplasty or a stent or a bypass, that isn't necessarily a risk factor for myocarditis, but I think previous myocardial disease, heart muscle disease, or a prior family history of heart failure that could be genetic. I'd be worried because uh, there, there's already a baseline susceptibility. And then we add on the messenger RNA vaccines uh, and the risk for myocarditis. Uh, when it does happen, it, it's more likely to be fulminant.
1: Yeah, you know, the fact that the military is forcing these onto our soldiers, uh, if they in a situation like this, where there's a real, real genuine health risk, and we know the exemptions are a joke most of the time, um, what happens? Do you, do you Have you heard any reports where they just leave? Are they able to get a, a proper uh, accommodation to leave the military? Or does this become, I don't know, are they in trouble legally? Do you know that?
2: I don't know. It's in flux. It seems like I've had a whole series of communications with uh, uh, independent military contractors working for contracting companies, people within the military, mm. healthcare workers, pilots, other groups. Uh, we know as of last week, uh, the remainder of the CMS um, Biden mandates for vaccination were overturned. They were overturned by Judge Dowdy in the sixth uh, uh, district court of Louisiana, a federal court. And uh, he read on two doctors' uh, testimonies. It was actually myself and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford. And uh, fortunately, he read our reports and our analyses and agreed that the mandates are not justified from a clinical or specific perspective. And there was a whole wave of, of, of state removals of mandates, in fact, trying to protect against mandates. So the general sentiment has shifted, and hopefully science here will prevail.
1: Yeah. Ron uh, asked the question, we have a 48-year-old friend who was vaccinated in June and was recently diagnosed with viral pericarditis. So we are concerned it could be caused by the Myrna vaccine. Are there any recommendations or resources of information that you could provide for his recovery?
2: This case, it sounds like it's about six months after receiving the vaccination. What we know in the analyses from both Rose as well as from Hoag, you, using available data sources that the myocarditis usually occurs within a couple of days after shot number two. So I think six months later, it'd be my clinical judgment that it's unrelated to the vaccine and it's just a viral uh, myopericarditis syndrome. And so that would fall into conventional treatment for that uh, after the initial diagnostics are done, historical EKG, blood cardiac troponin and cardiac echogram. Most patients are treated with a medicine called colchicine colchicine, and it's been shown in randomized trials. reduces uh, the recurrence rate in this condition. Interestingly, we use colchicine in the acute treatment of COVID separately to combat the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So here's an example of a generic medicine that we use in both applications.
1: Okay, this next one's from Thomas. He says, I've read recently that British research claims vaccinated individuals' natural immunity is suppressed by the vaccine to the point where they cannot mount long lasting natural immunity. Am I reading that correctly? I'm trying to wrap my head around the concept. Does this apply to the Delta variant as well, which the vaccine no longer recognizes or is ineffective against?
2: I can let listeners doing uh, his or her homework for sure. Um, There are now, I think, at least two papers suggesting that the vaccination actually negatively influences immunity uh, and potential future immunity against uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2, as well as other infections. And then importantly, if someone has already naturally immune and they ill-advised take a vaccine, that in fact, they could go backwards with vaccination these are preliminary preclinical papers i wouldn't read too much into them at this point in time let's let's wait and see on this there's no real good rationale about why vaccines should worsen immunity it just it, i think the main issue is that the uh, very narrow immunity against the spike protein with the vaccines uh, is is ephemeral it's certainly incomplete and um, at, at this point in time it looks like 22 studies show the vaccines effectively run out of protection in six months. That's the reason why all the authorities now have instituted recommendations for every six-month boosters.
1: Okay. all right. Uh, Dana asked the question, I believe in a video you gave support of the new Merck pill that is a $700 treatment for COVID. I have to do more research on it, however, I read it causes cancer. I'm not sure if this is true, but you haven't, uh, have you looked into that yet? I'm wondering if you could please, uh, especially before giving it further support. I've seen several reports of that, Dr. McCullough. What do you think about that?
2: The new drug called Mopiravir is a drug provided by Merck and Ridgeback Pharmaceuticals, and it is an oral polymerase inhibitor. So it inhibits the enzyme that's actually trying to, you know, have the virus, assists in viral replication. So the drug inhibits viral replication to some extent, just like uh, intravenous remdesivir does. That's a polymerase inhibitor. There is an uh, uh, overseas medication, very similar, called Favipiravir used in Japan, Russia and four states in India. That's actually approved to treat COVID nineteen. What we know with uh, perivir in the clinical trials, it looked like it was about thirty percent effective. It had about a thirty percent kind of treatment benefit, which is pretty modest. Uh, That would be lower uh, than that of ivermectin, maybe on par with hydroxychloroquine. Uh, And there is a um, concern that it may be uh, carcinogenic because it influences polymerase in human cells as well. And the concern is that if we don't have good patient of human cells, we actually have uh, cells go awry and become cancerous. Uh, you know, I have to tell you that the cancer uh, is, and with sh- such a short-term use of five days, 10 days, or even 30 days, I think the duration of use is going to be so short that the cancer risk will not. in. so okay, it looks like it's going to be modestly effective, Come into the program. You know it should be provided free of charge. Like if, it, if they charge seven hundred dollars for it, uh, people will look at that situation and they'll take hydroxychloroquine or Iverdin any day of my product.
1: Yeah, I just see that price tag. I was uh, surprised, actually, at the cost of that. And obviously, that sounds like a money laundering <laughs> scheme to me. But uh, the next one's from Charlotte. Uh, said, what are some symptoms that can show up in the unvaccinated? Already had COVID people who are around a lot of vaccinated people. Yesterday, I went to church and then out to eat and came home exhausted. So they're wondering, uh, again, symptoms that show up in unvaccinated that are around people that that have this, uh, uh, I guess, Yeah.
2: You know, I was uh, struck, I spoke at a symposium recently in San Diego, Uh, it's called Reopen San Diego, and I was on a panel discussion, and someone asked about shedding, basically, people around unvaccinated. And Dr. George Fareed, who was uh, one of my co witnesses in the uh, historic U.S. Senate testimony in November 19th of 2020, George Fareed stood up and said, it doesn't exist. That shedding really doesn't exist. He said there's not a single published peer reviewed paper mm-hmm. on shedding. Now, there's only one theoretical paper, and it's from MIT by Stephanie Senoff, that theoretically said that shedding could occur. You know, we have countless numbers of mm. anecdotes on a year on this, and not a single scientific paper proving that shedding can happen.
1: Yet, we've been talking about the last several episodes, uh, Dr. shedden It's been a big question people have had, so they're obviously getting the information somewhere to be questioned in the way that they are. Um, let's uh, turn our attention to a couple of questions about the monoclonal antibodies. Um, Larry says, as I understood a recent presentation by Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, she indicated that studies have indicated that getting the monoclonal antibodies uh, injections could cause autoimmune diseases. Um, here, here are some studies that she shared. I know you and others have promoted getting monoclonal antibodies as part of early treatment. Do you still hold that position?
2: Now, I'll have to take a look at them. Uh, you know, autoimmune that occur after antibody infusions, if they occur, are very rare, and they're usually with heated injections or infusions. You know, as a cardiologist, I prescribe Repatha, Praluent. Internal medicine doctors prescribe Humira, Remicade. Uh, when they prescribe these for a very long period of time, it's possible that immune complexes can form, uh, but almost certainly that's more of a chronic disease phenomenon than it is in acute administration. Here, we're just giving a one-time dose of one of three monoclonal antibodies available in the United States now, one by by Regeneron, third one by GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, I'm unaware of any reports of immune complex disease related to the um, the infusions. What has been described in COVID, because COVID is prolonged antigen exposure, is immune illnesses after COVID-19, the respiratory illness, brief, is untreated.
1: Yeah. And one last question on that uh, to, before we move on from Warren. Uh, he talks about the promoting of the monoclonal antibodies. He said, listen to this. He said, from listening to other doctors, my understanding is they are synthetic and are made from a cancer line. So why are these a good thing to be put in our bodies? Have you heard any of that?
2: That's not my understanding. How monoclonal antibodies are made is that there's actually a fully humanized mouse model in order to, to, to grow up the gene that codes for the antibody. And, uh, and then that gene is transferred to a ha- hamster ovary section, And then the ovarian cells of the hamster, once it has the gene, that they can actually put tons of antibodies. And that's how preluent Repatha Humira are made, and these monoclonal antibodies are no different. It's basically a large production facility, if you will. I've personally visited the Regeneron facility in New York, and it really is popular. these drugs are made. I use these monoclonal antibodies in my practice, Malcolm, every day and patients getting infusions. Uh, I, I am seeing very positive, dramatic results. I'm, I'm very favorable to the monoclonal antibody infusions. You know, this was a product of Operation One Speed, and I think sometimes we get so negative and so stressful of government agencies, we tend to throw out everything. And I would not throw out the monoclonal antibodies. I think they're safe, effective. The research has been high quality. I credit uh, the U.S. government, the National Institutes of Health, uh, as well as far that did win on this one.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I started the uh, the the broadcast today on that uh, that letter that I from John Doe American. There is a mistrust with the government, Doctor McCullough, and that exists. Uh, but they've done so much wrong. That's why the mistrust and the fear is there. You see, that's that's what's happening here. Um, this next one is from Alex. Uh, He says, I am in Australia and I've recently been given a vaccine mandate for my job as unfortunately all Australians are on such duress here. Um, I am also actively trying to get pregnant and am concerned about the potential effects on my fertility uh, or my unborn child if I I do get a vaccine. I want to seek a medical exemption. However, from my research, it doesn't look like pregnancy is a valid reason for this in Australia. Do you know of any research that proves the safety of COVID with nineteen vaccines in pregnancy, she's asking.
2: The registrational trials of all the vaccines excluded pregnant and with childbearing potential who could not guarantee contraception. So by those exclusion, these individuals strictly should be excluded from taking a vaccine in public practice. That's just regulatory uh, practice and regulatory laws carried forward to administration in a public program. So it would be really off regulatory standards to take a product that's never been tested in a woman trying to get pregnant or never been tested in a pregnant woman. Uh, We have no information on uh, fertility in humans. We have a paper uh, that was um, uh, presented as part of a biodistribution study by Pfizer for the Japanese regulatory authorities that showed the lipid nanoparticles uh, hyperconcentrate in the animals, which is uh, disturbing over 48 hours. And then the European medical so- associate asked Moderna to do a fertility study in animals and Moderna fertility in animals, but not to the extent that it would uh, kill the entire development program. So we've learned nothing good about the vaccines and conception. There's great concerns that the spike protein is in the human body now, uh, for over a year. So a woman pregnant would have the spike protein and potentially convey that to a nascent pregnancy uh, in the uh, gestational phase. And then we have a paper by Shamba Wako and colleagues from in the Wing of Journal of Medicine from several months ago uh, with great controversy on CAP's trimester and it depended on what denominator was used, but it was about 3,000 women who were pregnant who took the vaccine voluntarily and the news wasn't good, Malcolm. It was... Uh, the rates of fetal loss could be as low as 12% in the first trimester, which was, in a sense, within an expected range, but could be as high as 83%. Mm-hmm. And so New England Journal of Medicine was peppered with uh, letters to the editor. And in the end, the authors just retracted their conclusions and said, listen, we can't conclude that this is safe. Uh, I have published with uh, Ray Strader, who has been on the McCullough Report and leads the largest fetal loss center you know, in the country, in San Francisco, Myself, Ray, and Canadian authorities have published a paper in Trial Site News indicating that pregnancy is Category X, meaning that the vaccines have a dangerous mechanism have no reassuring safety data. So at this point in time, pregnant women under no circumstances should receive the vaccine.
1: Well, isn't it safe to say, tell me, that when the trials were done, as short-lived as they were to bring these vaccines to market, which was unprecedented in in its uh, form, um, who was omitted from those trials, uh, as brief as they were, were pregnant women and children. They weren't in the trials, were they?
2: Well, pregnant women and women at childbearing potential who could not guarantee contraception, the FDA, the human ethics boards and the vaccine manufacturers all agree should not be in vaccines because the vaccines wouldn't be safe and wouldn't be, you know, it would be basically ethical. To do that, so if it's unethical to have these women in the trials, Malcolm, they shouldn't be receiving it. See,
1: that's my point. I, I, that's what I don't even understand. Why this is even an argument anymore with pregnant women? And isn't it children the same capacity? They didn't put children in the trials, right?
2: Children weren't initially in the trials, but there's been subsequent trials uh, with Pfizer children, age 12 to 17. Uh, the first author is Frank and the Journal of Medicine, and then in um, children age five to 11. And the first author is Walther in New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, so they were about 5,000 children have been studied with Pfizer. Those are the data I know. And remember children ages 12 to 17, the Pfizer dose is unchanged from the adult dose, 30 grams per shot, two shots to immunize. And then in children five to 11, they drop it down to a third of the dose, 10 micrograms per shot on uh, you know on day one and then three weeks later. Uh, the, the pediatric trials uh, were not reassuring. Uh, they, you know, four, four to five thousand children, you know, about two dozen cases of a drippy nose were pre- were prevented. There were no serious illness in either placebo or in the vaccines. The vaccines weren't 100%. Yeah. But the bottom line is, you know, about a third got sick. They got uh, symptoms, a fever, chills, nausea, vomiting. They had to take time off of school. And there was mention of spread to family members, et cetera. We, we actually have no compelling clinical data that children should be considered for a vaccine.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Leo, let me get to this question, ask the question. Uh, we talked about the T-detect test um, that he took one after listening to the show recently um, and uh, it, to have a record of having the COVID-19. But, but here's the thing. Kids do not qualify for the T-detect, he's saying, and another antibody uh, uh, test due to their age. Uh, he, he, he wants to have a record of the kids also having COVID-19. So he's asking, uh, because of these mandates, he says in uh, California, he says, so are there any immunity tests available for children that you know of?
2: Children were not included in the data sets for the antibodies or the T-detect test. However, I can tell you the principles are tractable meaning that if we were to just ignore the uh, regulatory description of the patient population and just do the tests in children, everything that I know would indicate that if a child did hit a positive antibody titer on any of the conventional antibody tests available, Quest, LabCorp, Abbott, Roche, orthoclinical diagnostics, that's every bit as good as an adult hitting the same body test result. The same thing is true with T-Detect. So I as long as the doctor or the T Detect company is willing to accept a child as a patient and get the test done, I'd say do it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Here, well, let me remind folks we're listening here to uh, the COVID Q and A uh, with Dr. Peter McCullough. Uh, this is number eleven in the series if you're counting and you've been um, paying attention to that. Uh, this would be number eleven. Uh, you know, you know, I was thinking um, coming into the program today with uh, Dr. McCullough. He was talking about you know, as you know probably know, he does a lot of media appearances all over the country or all around the world, and uh, was talking about arena style events where people are just wanting to get out. And get this information and so on and so forth. You know, I started to think the success of these programs, the Q&A, think about walking it into arena. We've all done this probably at one point of our lives potentially. And you have, you know, 70,000 fans. There are people ready to listen or whatever the speech or the program or the, uh, you know, venue is. That's exactly who's tuned in right here, right now with us. It gives you an example of the power of this broadcast. And, you know, I just thought I'd share that with you. I think the reason is because of the intensity of these questions and the way the programs move, there's such viable information that comes out of them. But I also wanna remind you, we do these also with Dr. Henry Ely, and Dr. Ely is here on the network, actually is a, a good uh, ally and, and friend of Dr. McCullough. And the reason I bring it up, Dr. Ely is what, what a tremendous force he is, positive for the world for sure. But he also, Dr. Henry Ely, he's a naturopathic doctor. He looks at things differently, but very effectively. So it makes a very interesting team actually, is what I suggest to you. Um, so anyways, be sure to uh, hear those as well. Uh, you'll learn a ton from Dr. Henry Ely as well. Now, of course, our show here, The Voice of a Nation, is weekdays, uh, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Anywhere in the world, you can hear it on the iHeartRadio network. Um, And there's an encore at 10. So 6 and 10 is The Voice of a Nation here. My fellow Americans, we'll take a quick pause and we'll return to you on the other side. You're listening to The Voice of a Nation.
0: Listen to Malcolm, The Voice of a Nation on iHeartRadio or our free apps on Apple, Android or Alexa.
2: Dr. Peter McCullough, if you go to healthycell.com, you can check out the technology, the products of Healthy Cell. These are very innovative products. They are a form of bionutraceuticals that are bioactive and they come in a variety of categories. One is daily essentials, which are the bioactive multi and the vegan essentials. And then the next category is performance. And this is the REM sleep supplement. I've talked about it a lot. I think it's very effective and I recommend it uh, for myself and for my family, but as well as my patients, I'm having great luck with this because it is such a terrific product with um, a blend of I think is what's needed for not only promoting sleep, but also getting quality sleep. And when it gets quality sleep, then there's restfulness and the next day is better. And then the next night is better. And it becomes a progressively positive cycle for the human body. And the next product in the performance category is Focus and Recall, Focus and Recall. And I think that is the featured product that um, is coming into play for those with long COVID and brain fog that develops after COVID-19, the respiratory infection, but also after COVID-19 vaccination. And then finally, the main horse in Healthy Cell is the targeted support of Immune Super Boost, Immune Super Boost. And what we have here is a series of products that really can toe the line for patients who are working their way through the COVID-19 pandemic, either at risk for COVID-19, have had COVID-19 and recovered, are in the post-COVID syndrome, which is now a diagnosis we put in the electronic medical record, and are suffering through a variety of manifestations of post-COVID syndrome, and then lastly, those who are in the throes of vaccine reactions of some sort, whether they be uh, acute serious vaccine reactions or the more common mild uh, prolonged vaccine reactions, we now know the spike protein lasts in the human body after the respiratory infection or after vaccination for up to 15 months. We had this breaking development uh, brought to you on America Out Loud Talk Radio with Dr. Bruce Patterson on a recent episode, so we know this is the case and so we know if the Wuhan spike protein is in the human body for up to 15 months it's going to cause damage it's going to cause inflammation it's going to set a whole variety of immune responses up working against our body and potentially damaging cells tissues uh, intercellular communication systems and very importantly influencing organ function and here is where we need the maximum defense for the body uh, the maximum and the most appropriate blend of micronutrients, uh, minerals, as well as vitamins to help the body get through this difficult time. So go to healthycell.com and check out the products, and in the promotional code, use the term out loud for 20% off your first purchase. Let's get real, let's get loud on America out Loud Talk Radio.
0: Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. We join
1: you back here on The Voice of a Nation. It is Malcolm Aloud here, yours truly. And thank you again, friends, for being with us on the mission here. We're joined by Dr. Peter McCullough. This is our 11th COVID Q&A with Dr. McCullough. Uh, They are the most listened to uh, broadcast uh, on the network. Uh, They've surpassed everything. Uh, and the people who listen to these programs is remarkable. We do our very best to get to all the questions. There are so many, we can't get to them all, but there are a lot of repeats as well. So surely you'll find your answer in here somewhere, I, I would hope, through all of these. And all of those are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeart, Pandora, all back at the network. Just go look at the under uh, shows under the Voice of a Nation or the McCullough Report as well, and you'll see all of those and, and these Q&As as well. Uh, this next one is from Anne, and here's a couple of questions uh, that get into the NOVA facts a little bit here. Uh, thank you for the program and information uh, that you send out and broadcast. I try to listen to everything, and it's an amazing amount of great information and one of the only places to find it. Well, I think Anne's on something, isn't she? She says, I was recently let go from my job as a project manager because I would not get the vaccine. Well, there you go. She didn't buy into the social contract uh, Dr. McCullough talks about all the time, right? I'm very grateful for all the information that you and Dr. McCullough ha- have been providing every day to hardworking Americans. I'm not devastated by the loss of my job because I'm tired of working for a company that is so into social justice baloney for the wrong reasons and not for hardworking Americans. My family and I will not get the current vaccines. Can you find out more about the Novavax vaccine and is it will it be safer than the other jabs? She's asking. Dr. McCullough, the
2: Novavax vaccine is a spike protein uh, antigen-based vaccine. So there's no genetics involved. There's no messenger RNA. There's no adenoviral DNA. It's simply the spike protein that's manufactured. Believe it or not, it's manufactured in a um, a type of method that re- relies on moths. So it's actually the gene for the spike protein in a moth, and then that produces the spike protein. It goes into a matrix that. In matrix, then it becomes, in a sense, like a tetanus shot. It's injected, and then the body responds to the spike protein. In the registrational, it had equal protection against COVID nineteen, just like Pfizer and Moderna is about ninety percent protective, which was terrific. They had longer term follow up; they had five or six month follow up, unlike Pfizer Moderna at two months. So, in summary, I'm pretty high on Novavax. What we heard is that it was originally going to come out at the in July, and then delayed now. We're in December because of manufacturing issues. And what many inpatient Americans have said, including myself is come on with Operation Warp Speed and everything at stake. Can't we help out Novavax, an 800 person company in the United States, get up to full manufacturing and get this product rolled out? We have heard encouraging news about Novavax being improved outside the United States. Um, it looks like there's a sore arm with it, but in the registrational trials, there weren't systemic toxicities. So until we learn more, I mean, there are, there's no bad news on Novavax, and boy, it looks pretty good. Uh, why not frontline this uh, form of vaccine? I think Moderna and J&J, we've seen enough. They need to be paused.
1: Yeah, and you know, on this note of Novavax, I just want to read you, listen to this message from Leslie. Uh, Our daughter was blessed to marry her Australian husband at the end of 2019, just before COVID became a sad reality. They're now living in Australia. We have been unable to see them for almost two years. Listen to this, Dr. McCullough. So two years, they're held and restricted from seeing their loved ones uh, due to the restrictions, uh, specifically in this international travel in Australia. My husband and I have been able to avoid the vaccine, but we've realized that we may have to get the shot if we want to travel to Australia. We're hoping to wait on, well, guess what, Novavax. Uh, But I'm concerned it may not be available in the US. My question is, which vaccine would you recommend if you had to have one? Back to that, if you had to have one question. We get that quite a bit, actually. Is there anything we could do prophylactically prior to receiving the vaccine? We get that question a lot too, that would reduce any side effects. Uh, yeah, and then lastly, I want to listen to this question. Um, would take an aspirin reduce the likelihood of developing blood clots, etc.? cetera? Uh, they take all the supplements and things now. How do you answer all that?
2: Well, let's first off look at efficacy. the are to take a vaccine on the positive side. All the analyses that I have seen, it looks like Moderna is the winner. Moderna has the highest protection against COVID-19, both the respiratory illness, hospitalization, and death. It does wane over time, but uh, you know it goes from you know ninety five percent to seventy percent over six months. But there's still some protection there. It's a hundred micrograms of messenger A compared to thirty micrograms with Pfizer, and then Johnson Johnson's separate with adenoviral DNA. So Moderna looks like it's a winner in all the efficacy studies. In terms of safety, none of them look sufficiently safe. Honestly, high rates of death, non fatal uh, events, myocarditis, and all the other things we've uh, talked about. And what we don't have is we don't have any approach to prevent uh, complications. Uh, many have said we'll take aspirin because of the blood right. clot issues with the vaccines. We could try that empirically. There are no randomized, results, there's no research studies. There are a few links there on the internet that are suggesting things to be done, including antioxidants like n aspirin we've already talked about, Uh, other types of measures, maybe ivermectin antagonized the spike protein. Boy, I'd hate to think that we have to take a vaccine for true reasons, and then use a ton of medicines to try to, you know, in a sense, provide an antidote for the vaccine. The safest thing to do is not take one.
1: Right. I mean, you're dealing with your life here after all, you know, but you know, my heart goes out to Leslie, uh, you know, just trying to see their relatives in Australia It's a sad, sad state of affairs, really and truly it is. There's one last thought and we'll move past Novavax. This is from Jennifer. Want to get hers in here quickly. Uh, Novavax vaccine appears to be submitting their evidence soon, she says, and and request an EUA from the FDA by the end of 2021 here in the States. Does uh, McCullough have any insight into the clinical trial safety and efficacy shown regarding Novavax? You think it's, it's looking promising, you say, right?
2: Yes, about 90% protection against COVID-19, the respiratory illness. Now, that's with the uh, wild type alpha beta, which are now extinct. I anticipate they'll have little or no data with Delta, which is the predominant variant right now. Uh, it looked like a sore arm, probably more sore than Pfizer, Moderna, but no systemic DH de- issue that we see right now. So, you know, until I learn more right now, everything that we see is Novavax is a go, And as soon as it can become available, I think for high-risk seniors and nursing homes, nursing home workers, that would be the population I would consider. Most of the viewers, it sounds like they're much younger, mobile. Again, uh, the risk-benefit ratio is not there for
1: vaccine. right. And I like what Dr. McCullough says. I just want to remind listeners, if you didn't get that from what he just said, it kind of proves right along what we've said. He's not anti-vax. I'm not anti-vax. Uh, we just want something that's effective. And that just proves it with what he says there, uh, right? You don't have to read between the tea leaves too much to figure that out here. Um, you know, uh, Dr. McCullough, this next one from Valeria says again, and, and we get so many requests in this uh, for this in, I'm wondering if we can get this in writing, but more so maybe you have a couple of quick words on it. And and it's this real simple question. I, I desperately need Dr. McCullough's COVID protocol, please. And, and I, I get hundreds of these requests in here. Um, um, Can you sum that up in a quick summary, or is this something we should put in a written form and, and move on? What do you think?
2: You know, the best links, Malcolm, is that uh, the, the um, COVID protocols now, they're on Association American Physicians' website, aapsonline.org. Okay. They are on the okay. Truth for Health Foundation, truthforhealth.org. And then separately, uh, protocols that, you know, I didn't participate in the development of, but are widely used, are the frontline critical care consumption protocols? So I think those three websites will again share those websites again. clinical protocols, they are updated as well as AEPS keeps a leading doctors updated, uh, updated monthly. Those are the most useful resources and traffic to them
1: those sites. Okay. All right. Molly says, the news in my state has a slew of news stories about thousands of people being reinfected with COVID-19. <laughs> also noticing a national news headlines about reinfections. I'm wondering, is there any legitimacy to this or is it just more manipulation of data?
2: No legitimacy at all. You know, under our Freedom of Information Act uh, request, CDC is supposed They've never had a second case of COVID-19 in the same person or spread it to anyone else. I've looked at it over the literature. I don't think reinfection actually occurred. What's occurred is basically false positive testing. So what happens is, you know, people get COVID-19, they're seriously ill, they recover, they can intermittently test positive for the longest time. There is a tremendous amount of unnecessary testing for athletes, schools, travel that generates false positives. And that the bottom line is, as far as we can tell, the clinical infection COVID-19 occurs once. And how do we know that? There's been many patients with COVID-19. If it was possible to get a second time, we would have seen the same person come in the hospital over and over and go on the ventilator. We would have sweeped the nursing homes over and over again. Remember early on in the pandemic, all we heard about was nursing. homes. Do you know the U.S. national average for death of COVID-19 is 83 years old? 83. So this is an illness, a serious illness of the elderly. We're not seeing second cases. I think we should, it's one and done. We leave this issue of reinfection alone. Uh, It's a non-issue. Once somebody has COVID-19, the immunity is robust, complete, and durable, supported by 135 studies. I think there's a false narrative out there, reinfection. In order to keep the population in fear, and try to drive vaccination. Wow,
1: that is incredibly well said. That's about as a declarative statement as I've heard on it, Dr. McCullough. So thank you for that. That should put it to rest for folks listening to that. Uh, Lou says, I received my second Moderna jab in early April, 2021. On August 1st, I had my antibodies test because I was curious at LabCorp using the SARS-CoV-2 semi quaint total AB blood test. The results were positive with a with a 1664.0, um, uh, uh, what is it milliliters of antibodies present in my system. Uh, on August, on October 26, rather, I was tested again using the same DP test. The results were 112.0, which represents a 33% decrease from August. Is are there any studies or data out there that look at the threshold of antibodies produced by the vaccines and what levels of protection from severe illness and hospitalization those thresholds provide?
2: It's a reasonable inference. To say if the antibodies are positive against the spike protein vaccine, the patient is protected. I think it's fair to accept that. Uh, and that um, we know that these antibody tests have a high positive controls, means they've set the bar pretty high. If you can hit them, uh, then in fact, they're positive. But in a paper by Israel and colleagues from the country, is they showed that the decline in antibodies after vaccination is 40 months. So, I can tell you this person's on about that schedule, going to be about that decline. And at some point in time, the antibodies will be unmeasurable.
1: All right, I've got a few questions coming up on the rinse now. Let's get into this. This one's from Terry. Do you need to, t- to make the diluted iodine fresh daily, or can it be stored?
2: If you use tap water, then get fresh daily. If you use six ounces of water, that's going to be enough for a daily use of uh, you know, nasal rinsing and then oral gargling. Make sure you squirt it up the nose with a sprayer or a bulb syringe point where you can sniff it back and spit it out your mouth. And make sure you really clean out the nose with it. If it burns, it's too strong. Make sure you dilute it. If you want to make a solution and have it last, then go ahead and use uh, distilled water.
1: Okay, all right. Uh, this next one's from uh, Bird. Uh, is the Povidine iodine rinse and nasal swab safe for young children? In episode seven, you mentioned that outcomes for kids is good if they receive early treatment. What exactly is that early treatment? And also, what are the dangers of the Povidine iodine gargle? Is it possible that it will negatively affect the thyroid?
2: So children, uh, in terms of oral nasal washes, you know, it'd be fine to do it if the children, let's say a susceptible child, let's say a patient with cystic fibrosis or some condition that you're really worried about uh, them getting COVID-19. I think it's fine to do it, provided the kids know to spit it out and not swallow. We don't want kids swallowing large quantities of iodine. I think that's the most. So it's, ability to, it's the ability to actually do this. You test them out with listerine and they actually gargle something and spit it out. Uh, there's also a tolerance that kids may have with respect to nasal sprays that you're going to have to test each and every child. Probably age seven or so is where they could tolerate this. And you can do it. If it burns, it's too strong. Make sure you dilute it more. Uh, if there is thyroid disease, only the hyperactive diseases, Graves' disease or hyperfunctioning nodules is a concern. A low thyroid, the most common form of thyroid disease, uh, is not impacted by iodine uh, whatsoever. And uh, Im- importantly, um, we would uh, want to, uh, again, make sure that no one swallows it. And if there's any iodine sensitivity, some people are have a sensitivity to shellfish and iodine, those two allergies go together. Then just go ahead and switch over to dilute hydrogen peroxide.
1: Okay. Uh, Paula says, I am 50 years old. I took the Moderna shot one in August. And after two weeks, I began to experience heart pain. Uh, b- before this, I was in perfect health and never experienced any heart issues or anything else for that matter. Now I'm being coerced into taking a, a second shot uh, mid-December this month here, or I will be terminated. Wow. I live in Canada where it is very difficult to find work if you are unvaccinated. You know, it's, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. You want to put food on the table. You, I mean, the whole thing is ludicrous. For this reason, I am seriously considering taking shot two, can you imagine this, in order to remain employed? I'm wondering since Moderna caused an adverse reaction, should I take Pfizer for shot two or is it better not to mix the vaccines? Finally, does it help me in any way to wait a full 16 week between shot one and two as far as my heart health goes? You know, I've got to tell you, Dr. McCullough, this question is a series of questions from Paula is just remarkable to me. How would you answer her?
2: It's a complete moral hazard, right? So this idea that employment is wrongfully tied to administration of an unsafe vaccine. Here's a situation where the vaccine may have caused myocarditis on the first uh, go around with chest pain. That's the first thing that would come to mind would be myocarditis or myopericarditis. And at that first instance should have been uh, an EKG, a troponin, cardiac echo to see if that diagnosis is there. As a general principle, once we've had any reactions on the first shot, whether it's myocarditis, allergic reactions, neurologic syndrome period. So one shot, if there's side effects, boom, you're out of the second shot. So there should be a fair exemption process in this case, because we can't continue to force vaccine vaccine people uh, basically have been injured by them uh, to begin with. Both Pfizer and Moderna have FDA warnings against myocarditis. So trading off one for the other is not going to work. Um, at the outside consideration would be uh, Johnson and Johnson or AstraZeneca that currently have the myocarditis warnings on them.
1: This next one's from L. I currently have COVID, have not been vaccinated, and I'm steadily getting better on day five of illness today. My question is, what is the difference between the spike protein found in the naturally occurring virus and the spike protein found in the vaccine? Well, I continue to produce spike proteins and shed them the way vaccinated people do, and for how long? In
2: the natural infection, I had him on the McCullough Report, Dr. Bruce Patterson from Northern and Stanford, has shown that the S1 segment the outer segment of the spike protein recoverable in CD16 positive human monocytes up to 15 months after the respiratory infection but it's only the S2 segment so half of the spike protein basically now Dr. McCullough's report gave the data for the first time in the last few weeks demonstrating that both the S1 and the S2 segment are recoverable from patients using his methods who have the vaccine for as many months as he's been able to see from the time of vaccinations. And it looks like an installation of the spike protein, but this time, both the s ones and S2 segment. Um, you know, there have been no demonstrated cases of spike protein shedding from the respiratory infection or from the vaccine in the published literature. As we covered earlier, there's plenty of anecdotes of people saying they were around somebody vaccinated and they felt something. Uh, and, and I do believe them. I think it's possible. In my clinical practice, I saw a young woman who has shingles on her back after she had very close contact. And we're talking about basically kissing or sexual contact with someone. Uh, That would be enough to to exchange spike protein. Now, the one area where we think there was a direct fatal spike protein shedding was there was a breastfeeding woman reported in the VAERS system who her child died of a hemorrhagic death uh, a few days later. And that could have been spike protein after vaccination in the breastfeeding woman.
1: Okay. Next one's from Christina. Thank you, Malcolm and Dr. McCullough uh, for these Q&A sessions are teaching the public that our healthcare should be a partnership with our doctors. I like that. I like the way she put it. That. That's why I shared it with you. What are your thoughts on COVID medications, budesonide, and... Fluvoxam, fluvoxamine, I guess it is, if a person has already taken budesonide for asthma and Zoloft for anxiety due to autism and they get COVID.
2: Okay, so budesonide uh, in randomized trials, the best one to quote is the STOIC trial, was associated with uh, about over an 80% reduction in hospitalization when it started really early COVID-19, 800 micrograms per dose, at least twice a day for 10 days. So uh, I would with budesonide in acute COVID. There's, uh, that's a winner. Now, flovoxamine is an oral serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. And in three randomized trials now, the most recent one from Brazil was associated with reductions in hospital and death in acute COVID-19. We're not sure why, it may be just reducing the anxiety of the, the shortness of breath and the uh, severity of symptoms in COVID-19, but it looks like a winner. And I think fluvoxamine is something I would use. It's not currently not in the McCulloch protocol, simply because the data weren't there when we had published it. I would consider it now, though, based on the randomized. However, the concurrent serotonin norepinephrine or, or serotonin reuptake inhibitor, in this case with Zoloft, would have to be stopped. So I would stop Zoloft or the other drugs in the class and go ahead and go with fluvoxamine.
1: Oh, wow. Very good. Very interesting. I may want to update that information out there too. But uh, All right, Ted asks, uh, does uh, Dr. McCullough think the graphene oxide in the vaccines is toxic or safe? It sounds like scary stuff to me, but I'd like to get his take on it. I
2: don't have any information on ingredients that are not disclosed by the manufacturers. So uh, the public is becoming increasingly impatient. with the vaccine manufacturers which are not disclosing the full list of ingredients in the vaccine. So we simply don't know whether or not uh, graphene arc is indeed in the vaccine.
1: Interesting. Wow. And just to think we don't even know what they're putting into our bodies. That's remarkable, really. Uh, Shelly says, thank you for all uh, that you are doing. Can you ask about the changes being made? Oh, in the PCR testing, I heard the current test will be retired at the end of the year, what is being planned and what tests will be uh, uh, truly t- uh, uh, tested? You know, I, I'm hearing this question a bit now. Do you, you know about this?
2: Yes, the CDC uh, has announced earlier this year that the original CDC methods for PCR detection of COVID-2 could not distinguish between influenza and COVID-19. So the first concern is in the original parts of the pandemic at the very beginning, we relied on the CDC methodology for all the laboratory-derived assays for SARS-CoV-2, my health system did, everyone else's did, meaning that the uh, departments of public health all the hospital-based assays early on could not tell flu from COVID-19. So invariably, some people with flu were diagnosed with COVID-19 and probably improperly treated with remdesivir and other treatment. What happened over time, though, is the public health agencies, the COVID testing centers, they retained the CDC methodology, but most hospitals and other centers started to use the commercial assays, which were Roche and Quest, LabCorp, Orthoclinical Diagnostics, uh, Abbott, et cetera, and all the commercial assays had their own methodologies. They didn't rely on the CDC methodologies. So what's going to happen now is the CDC methods will be retired and that the testing centers, the county and uh, public testing centers will probably shift over to a commercial manufacturer, uh, which doesn't have the same problems of the CDC assay.
1: Okay, here's this last one from Jennifer. And then I got uh, one final big question for you. But Jennifer says, I'm a regular listener of your wonderful show. Uh, I live on a farm in north-southwest Australia, and my mother lives in England. Due to our lockdowns, I haven't been able to visit her since the pandemic started, of course. Uh, She received her first dose of the Pfizer vaccine in February and her second one in April. Both shots knocked her flat. She felt very sick and had a splitting headache, which lasted uh, days. And then she felt fine after that, after going down. About 10 weeks after her second dose, however, she got shingles, shingles, which she had never had before. Not long after getting the shingles, she suffered a severe and painful bout of sciatica and struggled to walk for a couple of weeks. My mother's 78 now. She has always been active and healthy apart from suffering this latest here. The UK government is now encouraging everyone to get their booster shots. My mother feels she should probably take the booster. So the daughter is questioning whether she should get the booster or not. She says here, Uh, Can you please find out if my mother would be likely to get shingles again for any other immune disorders if she goes ahead and takes the booster? Given her circumstances with the high rates of COVID all around, does he think she would be better or worse off if she takes it? If she doesn't take it, how best can she protect herself?
2: Well, fortunately, Australia, New Zealand uh, have had high rates of COVID. So the rates of COVID over there are astonishingly low. So it's, Australia is probably one of the safest places to be out and about, wow. far lower cases wow. than the United States, really. And what we know is once somebody's had a neurologic complication, in this case, expression of the zoster virus or shingles after vaccination, it, 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 it's just going to be risky taking any more of these shots. From shot one to shot two, there's an 80-fold increase, uh, what's called reactogenicity, That is the shots have more side effects on shot number two. We don't know now with the boosters, but I would infer since we're loading the body with spike protein and this protein cannot be cleared fast enough that building up more spike protein in the human body with neurologic conditions is just going to invite more neurologic uh, side effects.
1: All right, now finally, Doctor McCullough, uh, let's do this with uh, listeners all uh, you know intently listening. They've listened to the full program, so they're hearing you now. Uh, let's just take the last uh, couple of moments here, and I- I'd like you to um, uh, you know, give us a, a kind of a state of a union of affairs of where you think we're at, and maybe a moment of optimism if it does exist uh, to listeners of where we're at in this fight, please.
2: On the optimistic side, you know, more and more patients are receiving early treatment. The hospitals in the United States and worldwide are not overflowing. There's not a single hospital crisis in the country. The message on early treatment has gotten out. We are using monoclonal antibodies, the other drugs in sequence combination. If the Merck drug comes forward, that'll uh, raise in a rising tide, uh, elevates all ships in the harbor. We're gonna see more focus on early treatment. Uh, about 70% of Americans have taken the vaccine, 80% of our seniors. There's not that many more people out there to take a vaccine. We've had uh, really a strong tide against vaccine mandates. Courts, states have ruled against vaccine mandates for healthcare workers, uh, federal contractors, and the list goes on and on. So look at the United States as a beacon where we're in a sense, in a struggle against freedom against ourselves. Uh, And what's gotten into the minds of people now is a a really contorted view of the vaccines and and their relationship to pandemic response. So I'm very hopeful now that we're starting to see resistance in the United States getting back to where we should be. The vaccine should always be a personal choice, and they're not sufficiently safe or effective to uh, basically to have anything more than just personal choice with no pressure, coercion, and the threat of reprisal. And that we do a new vaccine on the way, Novavax, and we'll see as this moves into other uh, countries, uh, we'll rapidly get an idea if it's safe. It's uh, it's sad to think that we have to get a, a new product out there and get it used to figure out if it's safe. But indeed, that's what's happening. And uh, I think we should uh, take holidays. We have a wonderful time. People get our football stadiums are open. People are sitting shoulder to shoulder. Schools are seen major outbreaks in congregate settings, believe me. In the United States, if there were outbreaks coming after your football games or after major events, we'd be hearing about it. We're hearing none of that. Mm -hmm. So at this point in time, I think Americans can move on with their lives. Let's treat COVID-19 in those who develop it, whether they're vaccinated or unvaccinated, and let's leave these vaccines aside until we have safer new products come on the market.
1: Well, that that is a good uplifting message there uh, and not just wait ready for the next variant to come down. Because again, this has been a game of fear. uh, Sadly, that has been played around the world as we started with that message. Uh, it's been a historical moment of time for all of us and we've learned so much uh, and as I said to Dr. Henry Ely on the QA we did the other day, we're now that much more conscious now of our health aren't we now right We're health, we're much more conscious of our immune systems we know we need to be taking lots of vitamin D uh, right We know we, we need to be we, we know all this zinc is so important to the system. All of these things a healthy cell I talked to you about all the time uh, you, you heard that in the break there but in, in any event, there's a lot of things we can do in being proactive. Uh, And that's the lesson. And and again, what I always tell you, get out and take a walk, get out and see the trees, enjoy life, smile, say hello to somebody, good afternoon, good morning. Uh, You know, that's what life should be, my fellow Americans. That's what we should, and I say my fellow Americans respectfully, I know we have a lot of Australians and Europeans and others that listen to around the world, Um, but uh, talking to our home audience here and and all of you around the world, we, we wish you the best at a jump in your step. Thank you for joining me on the mission here. It's time to get involved and get love